Alex Amen, your non-binary host, and this is the 51st episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. It's also the first episode of Season 3, The Irish Civil War. Today I'll provide a recap on the Irish War of Independence. I'm excited to be returning to Ireland to discuss the Irish Civil War, even though after what happened yesterday in Russia, maybe my next season will be about the Russian Civil War. Um, But for today, I wanted to uh, provide a recap of the Irish War of Independence, uh, because the Irish War of Independence and the Irish Civil War are so intricately tied together. I've even seen some historians argue that they could be considered one big civil war. So this episode is for people who listened to my first season but want a refresher, because I will be referring to that season a lot and a lot of the developments that happened during the Irish War of Independence um, come to roost during the Irish Civil War. Um, But this episode's also for people who haven't had a chance to listen to my first season and you just want a quick summary of the conflict as we dive into season three. Um, So this will be the first recap. This is specifically about the Irish War of Independence. I have another recap that we'll be posting soon. And that's a recap on the treaty, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, um, the spark for the Irish Civil War, although I won't say it is the specific cause because there's a lot of causes. While I love researching, writing scripts, and recording episodes, it's hard to do without finances. Even when I'm borrowing materials from the library, I I still need to pay for things like uh, web hosting costs, subscriptions for Canva, for my um, audio recorder. You know, at some point I wanted a new microphone. I still have to pay for some research because I can't get everything out of the library. Um, and I also need to eat um, and travel for research. If you enjoyed my last two seasons and are excited about season three and my newly launched Kit Talk, uh, then please join my Patreon. Not only will you be supporting me, but you'll gain early access to my episodes, listen to exclusive episodes, watch behind the scene videos, and even get a shout out in my episodes. And now that the betting for money part is, is over, it's time for making history. A lot of terrible things have happened between now and my last episode, and there's an ever-growing amount of work that needs to be done. I'll discuss some of those opportunities in great depth in my behind the scenes episode, Um, Because quite frankly, I'm still catching up on everything and I want to make sure that I have a complete list of the things that need to be done. But for now, I want to talk about something fun and actually is really simple to do. This is to help in the fight to protect libraries and fight book bans. For the People, a leftist library project, is asking us to take time this summer to sit down and talk to our neighbors about why libraries and the books they offer are so important. They're calling the initiative Libraries and Lemonade. The idea is to create a lemonade stand in your neighborhood and talk about libraries, um, why they're important, why what services they offer beyond just checking books out. For a lot of people, libraries are access to internet, access to printers, access to mental health services. Like here in Chicago, libraries are offering free mental health services. Their access to job searches, their access to information you couldn't get anywhere else. Like for my podcast, 90% of my research comes from libraries through their um, partnerships with different journals or their um, interlibrary loans. Like 
they they offer a lot of services it's a free place it's one of the few free open places where people can gather um and so these are just a couple of things you can talk about while you're uh, hosting your lemonade stand um for the people that provided um guides a conversation guides coloring pages graphics and stickers and zines on the history of libraries and are even offering $50 to the first 30 people who sign up to host a library to help pay for the costs. I'll provide a link uh, to their page in the description. And now it's time to remind ourselves of what happened during the Irish War for Independence. One cannot talk about or understand the Irish Civil War without understanding the Irish War of Independence. In fact, I've seen more and more historians argue that we can think of the Irish War of Independence and the Irish Civil War as one big civil war, since the Royal Irish Constabulary, the IRC, and the IRA's main enemy before the Black and Tans arrived, were Irish themselves, and Ireland intimidated, harassed, and executed Irish people who they considered informers and traitors. Additionally, many of the hopes, dreams, and aspirations initiated by the Women's Liberation Movement of 1912 lockout of 1913 and easter rising were further refined by the irish war of independence and contributed to the violent schism in irish society following the signing of the anglo-irish treaty these aspirations and goals would further be redefined by the irish civil war with the participants of all sides feeling like they lost more than they gained from the entire affair that's why i feel it's important to recap the major events of the irish war of independence Ireland has always been a place of debate, uprisings, and desire for change. But in the early 1900s, there were several movements that paved the way for the Irish War of Independence. The Suffragette Movement of 1912, the Gaelic Revival, the 1913 Lockout, the Home Rule Campaign, and Easter Rising. I've discussed all these movements in great detail in the first season, but in summary, the Suffragette Movement, the Gaelic Revival, and the 1913 Lockout created an environment of mass organizing and brought together many activists and future revolutionaries. The Home Rule Campaign, combined with World War I, created the conditions for a violent uprising. British Prime Minister Gladstone introduced the concept of Home Rule in 1880, with support from one of Ireland's most famous statesmen, Charles Parnell. The entire purpose of Home Rule was to grant Ireland its own parliament with seats available to both the Catholic majority and the Protestant minority, and current power brokers. However, Parnell destroyed support for Home Rule by being involved in a messy and scandalous divorce, and the Irish Republican Army, the IRB, the precursors to the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, scared the British government with their terrorist attacks. Home Rule went through another failed iteration, but by, by the 1900s, John Redmond was confident he would get the third iteration passed. This newest iteration was introduced to Parliament in 1914 and would have created a bicameral Irish Parliament in Dublin, abolished Dublin Castle, the centre of British power in Ireland, and continued to allow a portion of Irish MPs to sit in Parliament in England. It was supported by many nationalists in Ireland, barely tolerated by the Asquith administration, and despised by the Unionists. The Unionists were mostly centered in what today is Northern Ireland, and they believed they had a reason to worry. They had not forgotten the Protestant slaughter during the 1798 uprising, nor the power they lost through the machinations of O'Connell and Parnell. If you want to know more about those two events, listen to the first episode of my podcast, of season one of my podcast. Facing a massive change in their lives, should home rule pass, the Unionists took a page out of the physical force book and created their own paramilitary organization, the Ulster Volunteers. The Ashquith government knew of the Ulster Volunteers, their gun smuggling, and their drilling, but did nothing except delay home rule as long as possible. 
Asquith's delaying tactics and the creation of the Ulster Volunteers made Irish nationalists nervous, and they took matters into their own hands. Arthur Griffith, an Irish writer, politician, and the source of inspiration for many young rebels, created the political party Sinn Féin. Griffith argued for a dual monarchy approach, similar to the Austrian-Hungary model. He believed Ireland and England should be separate nations united under a single monarch. He also introduced the concept of parliamentary absenteeism, i.e. Sinn Féin was a political party that would never sit in British Parliament because the Parliament was illegitimate. In response to the Ulster Volunteers, Eowyn McNeil and, uh, and Balmer Hobson created the Irish Volunteers. Both men believed that the Irish wouldn't stand a chance in an uprising against the British government, and their best bet was to trust Redmond to pass home rule. The Irish Volunteers were created in order to defend their community, communities from Unionist attacks. Danes were tense in Ireland, but it seemed that parliamentary politics would save the day and the extremists would be pushed to the sidelines. Then, World War I began. The British used the war to pass home rule, but delayed it taking effect for another three years. To add insult to injury, John Redmond encouraged young Irishmen to enlist in the British Army and fight for the Empire. McNeil and Hobson tried to convince his members to continue to trust Redmond, although they were angry that he was recruiting for the war. Yet there, were, there was a handful of Irish volunteers, who were also members of the resurrected IRB, who believed England's difficulty was Irish opportunity. They were Tom Clark, Sean Macchiamata, Padraig Pierce, Thomas McDonough, Eamon Sient, and Joseph Plunkett. These men, plus James Connolly of the Irish Citizen Army, would sign the proclamation of, Ir of the Irish Republic, and it would serve as their death warrant. They knew they would not be able to win without arms and support, so keeping their plans to themselves, they sent Roger Casement to Germany to, protect, to present their plans for a German invasion that would coincide with an Irish rising. The Germans re rejected this plan, maybe remembering what happened in 1798 when the French made a similar landing weeks after a massive Irish uprising, but promised to send arms. The Irish volunteers were often seen drilling and practicing for some vague rebellion, so it wasn't suspicious to the authorities or to McNeil and Hobson to, to see units marching around. When Pierce issued orders for parade practice on April 23rd, Easter Sunday, McNeil and Hobson took it at face value while those in the know knew what it really meant. The surreal arrangement would not last for long, and the committee's secrecy nearly destroyed the very rising it was trying to inspire. The first bit of trouble was Roger Casement's arrest. The Germans were less than supportive of the uprising, and it seems Casement boarded the ship odd to return to Ireland to either stop or postpone the rising. However, when he arrived in Ireland on April 21st or 22nd, he was picked up by British police and placed in jail. Then McNeil and Hobson had their worst suspicions confirmed. Pierce and his comrades were secretly planning a rebellion without their support. McNeil vowed to do everything except going to the authorities to prevent the rising and sent out a counter-order canceling the drills scheduled for Sunday. This counter-order took an already confused situation and turned it into a bewildering disaster. Units formed as ordered by Pierce and dispersed with great, pu great puzzlement and some anger and frustration. Pierce and his comrades met to discuss their next steps and decided the die had been cast. There was no other choice except to try again tomorrow, Monday, 24th of April, 1916. Easter Rising was concentrated in Dublin, with a few units causing trouble on the city's outskirts. The Irish rebels fought from Monday to Friday, surrendering Friday morning. The leaders of the Rising were murdered, but many future IRA leaders such as Eamon de Valera, Michael Collins, Richard Mulcahy, Constance Markievicz, Liam Lynch, and others survived. They were sent to several different prisons, the most famous being Frondock, where Collins was held. 
The IRB turned it into a revolutionary academy and practiced their organizing and resistance skills while formalizing connections and relationships. When they were released, starting in December 1916, they were ready to take those skills back to Ireland. Part 2. Creation of the IRA and the Dáil Their approach was two-pronged. One, winning elections, and two, rebuilding the Irish Volunteers slash Irish Republican Brotherhood. When the prisoners were released, the Irish population went from hating them for launching a useless rebellion to cheering their return. The English helped flame the revolutionary spirit in Ireland by proclaiming Easter Rising a Sinn Féin rebellion and arresting many Sinn Féin members who had nothing to do with the Rising. They made it clear Sinn Féin was a revolutionary party while John Redmond's party was out of touch. Sinn Féin ran several candidates such as Eamon de Valera, Michael Collins, and Tom Ash. Ash would be arrested while campaigning and charged with sedition. While in jail, he went on hunger strike and was killed during a force feeding. Following an Irish tradition, Sinn Féin and the IRB turned Ash's funeral into a political right lightning rod. They organized the funeral procession, the Three Valley Salute, and Collins spoke over Ash's grave, quote, There will be no oration, nothing remains to be said for the volley which has been fired is the only speech it is proper to make above the grave of a dead Fenian. On October 26, 1917, Sinn Féin would hold their first national convention. During the convention, Eamon de Valera replaced Arthur Griffith as president, and Sinn Féin dedicated itself to Irish independence with the promise that after independence was achieved, the Irish people to elect its own form of government. However, there was still tension between those who believed in passive nonviolence and the militant 16ers, those who believed in violence and the uprising. 1917 to 1918 was spent building a bridge between parliamentary politics and the militant politics of the 1920s, with Sinn Féin's large, young membership pushing it into a more militant direction. Sinn Féin was also breaking social conventions, even though Kamen Nibban was still an auxiliary unit, Sinn Féin would allow four women on the Sinn Féin executive and would run two women in the 1918 election, Constant, Constance Martijovic and Winifred Carney, with Martijovic becoming the first woman to win a seat in Parliament. Many of its supporters and campaigners were also women. In fact, many men would complain in 1917 and later on that the women were more radical than the men. This would be important for the Irish Civil War, and we'll get into that later. Tomanovan fully embraced the 1916 proclamation and even had Hannah Shahi Steffington deliver a message to Pres President Wilson in 1918, asking him to recognize the Irish Republic. Hannah Shahi Steffington's husband had been executed during Easter Rising by some very angry, potentially drunk, potentially mentally ill British officer. Tomanovan took the front line in the anti-recruitment campaign and the police boycott and the anti-conscription movement. Like the volunteers, Kamenaban believed that they were a military unit, and although they never got arms for themselves, and worked closely with the volunteer units and Sinn Féin clubs. Part 2A, Irish Volunteers and the IRB. While Sinn Féin was slowly rebuilding itself, the Irish volunteers were also being resurrected from the ashes. It started with local initiatives led by men like Ernest Blythe, Eowyn O'Duffy, and Sean Treacy. Units popped up in local communities, organized and armed by their local leaders, and eventually making contact with GHQ, which consisted of men like Collins, Mulcahy, and Broda. While local units were rebuilding themselves, Collins was using the IRB to form a strict corps of officers, a growing source of personal power, as well as military power that men like Broda and De Valera, who were IRB during Easter Rising, but renounced their membership after the Rising failed, distrusted. 
GHQ issued an order saying that units should only listen to orders coming from their own executive in order to prevent the order counter order disaster that possibly doomed Easter Rising and the Sentinel, and swore the volunteers would only be commanded into the field if officers were confident of victory. No forlorn battles. Mulcahy, as chief of staff, worked hard to instill a military spirit and discipline into the volunteers while understanding that their most effective units at the moment was the company and local initiative. The companies would expand into battalions, brigades as the war progressed, but the fighting and tactics would remain local and territorial. So while trying to act like a regular army and expecting the volunteers to respect their officers and GHQ, he also had to allow for local improvisation as well as trust the local executives to control their soldiers. This would also be very important for the Irish Civil War and after. It was a difficult balancing act he would struggle to maintain during the entire Irish War for Independence and into the Irish Civil War and the formation of the Free Irish State. The Irish Volunteers Convention on October 26, 1917 elected de Valera as president, Broda as chairman of the executive, with Collins as director of organization and Mulcahy as director of training, Liam Lynch as director of communications, Stans as director of supply and treasurer, and O'Connor, Rory O'Connor as director of engineering. All this work could have been for nothing if the British hadn't handed the IRA the greatest gift in the world, the 1918 conscription crisis. Part 3, Lightning Rod Issues. Food Shortage, 1917-1918. to Before conscription was the food shortages in the winter of 1917-1918. to The shortages were created because of food being exported to Britain, invoking memories of the Irish potato famine. Sinn Féin could not stop all the food being exported, but they did what they could to protest this new version of starvation. For example, a member of Sinn Féin, Thiermud Lynch, took 30 pigs meant for exportation, killed them, and shared the food with hard-hit families, earning him deportation to America, but becoming a local folk hero and increasing Sinn Féin's prestige. The Irish Parliamentary Party grew out of the land wars of 1880s. Sinn Féin, ever aware of Irish history, decided it would be no different. It joined in the fight for land, arguing that all ranch land should be broken up evenly. All over the country, Sinn Féin created commission, commissions to break up the land and figure out the pricing as well as organizing mass occupation of available land, but ranchers refused to acknowledge the prices Sinn Féin proposed. The Irish volunteers officially stayed out of the new land war, proclaiming it wasn't a military conflict and the army or the volunteers were not going to get involved in political matters. However, local groups sometimes participated. This, combined with Sinn Féin's own land seizures, could lead to painful confrontations with police and other angry Irishmen, so it was a difficult job balancing nonviolence and not starting a mass uprising. Just yet. Another tool Sinn Féin used was boycotting. Said to originate in Ireland during the land wars and used to great effect by Charles Parnell, Sinn Féin boycotted the RIC. This was a serious threat to the British system, decreasing the pool of candidates it could recruit from for the RIC and training the people to view the IRC as quote-unquote others, the first step to making a population comfortable with violent acts. Boycotting the IRC was an old idea, something Sinn Féin and the Irish volunteers wanted to implement as soon as they were released from prison. This became a strong tool of the volunteers to ostracize those who were, who were quote-unquote betraying the rebel cause by working for the British, as well as preparing the citizens for a war mentality. Part 3b, Conscription Crisis. No one yet knew that World War I would be over by November 11, 1918. Britain thought they were facing long years of further bitter sacrifices and they needed new blood. 
They looked at Ireland and its large set of unruly young men itching for a fight and introduced the military service bill, extending forced conscription to Ireland, giving the volunteers a shot in the arm while also uniting the Irish political parties for the first time ever. Sinn Féin, Irish Parliamentary Party, and the Catholic Church pledged to resist Britain's efforts to conscript Irishmen. De Valera prepared a statement meant for Woodrow Wilson, insisting that the resistance was a battle for self-determination and principles of civil liberty, similar to America's cause during their own revolution. The volunteers planned local actions as well, using the conscription crisis as a springboard for intensive recruiting and introducing the idea of militant resistance into the greater Irish consciousness. The boycott of the RIC increased tenfold during the anti-conscription movement, shocking the police and trapping them in their barracks in locations such as North Tipperary. Women were particularly effective implementers of the, of the boycott. Eventually, the boycott expanded to include those who helped or associated with the police. The boycott didn't force many police to, to resign, but it built a belligerent and hateful mindset against the police, allowing for later violence. The Irish volunteers were not as engaged with the conscription crisis as Sinn Féin, because they, they still didn't have a doc doctrinal strategy in place. Instead, volunteers were told to avoid getting arrested, and if the IRC tried to arrest them, to resist. The volunteers held daily drills and parades and prepared for battle, should the order ever arrive. However, GHQ seemed more concerned with getting rifles and ammunition than ordering a massive uprising. Conscription allowed them to demand that the local areas their units controlled give up their guns to the Irish volunteers. Some volunteers even bought rifles off the IRCs or local British soldiers. Lack of guns would be a problem that plagued the IRA throughout their war with the British, and would also be important for the Irish Civil War. Conscription also saw a spike in people joining the Irish volunteers. GHQ tr tried to manage this wave of volunteers by issuing orders regarding how men should be recruited and how they should be vouched for and accepted. The Irish volunteers allowed their own soldiers to elect their officers, because how could that go wrong? Also, another important point for the Irish Civil War. GHQ seemed to try and curb who could be elected by requiring that they be members of the IRB, but given the haphazard nature that these units were created in, it was only somewhat successful. Some units merged the volunteers and IRB men seamlessly, while other companies were dominated by non-IRB men or vice versa. And this whole IRB person versus not being an IRB, IRB person is also important for the Irish Civil War. The uh, Irish volunteers threatened mass slaughter should Britain try to enforce conscription, and apparently there was a plan for Capelbrugge to lead a group of men to assassinate the British cabinet, relying on Collins and Mulcahy, who was now chief of staff, to recruit for this venture. Part 3C, German Plot. The British backed down on conscription in mid-May, while also arresting 73 nationalist leaders from May 17th to 18th under the Defense of the Realm Act, including Eamon de Valera, Constance Markievicz, Arthur Griffith, and William Cosgrave. They claimed there was a German plot, i.e. Sinn Féin, was working with Germany, like the 1916 rebels and the 1798 rebels did with the French. It quickly became clear how flimsy the excuse was, that there was scant information, and this undermined the government's credibility in Ireland. It successfully knocked Sinn Féin off its feet for a moment, especially since all nine of the 21 members of Sinn Féin's standing committee were arrested, but the British failed to arrest some of the most dangerous rebels such as Collins, Broda, Mulcahy, and Harry Boland. But in the long run, it boosted Sinn Féin's cause and destroyed any chance the Irish Parliamentary Party had in reclaiming the national narrative. 
as Constance Markievicz claimed, sending you to jail is like pulling out all the loud stops on all the speeches you ever made. Our arrests carry so much further than speeches. Part 4. The 1918 Election Sinn Féin had won a total of five elections between 1917 and 1918. 1918 was their first general election. The election was held on December 14, 1918, and was considered one of the most important moments in modern Ireland's history. It was the first election after the end of the First World War, and because of the Representation of the People Act, women over the age of 30 and working-class men over the age of 21 could vote for the first time, tripling the Irish electorate from 1,700,000 in 1910 to 1.9 million in 1918. The Irish Parliamentary Party would only win six seats, the Unionists took 26 seats, and Sinn Féin won 73 seats. The Sinn Féin victory could be explained in three different ways. One, the new electorate. Women and working-class men, people who had been hit hardest by the war and the and Easter Rising and the conscription crisis, as well as the food shortage in 1917, voted in waves. Not only was Sinn Féin and Irish volunteers campaigning, but Kaminaban campaigned hard as well, possibly driving people into the arms of Sinn Féin, since Sinn Féin stood for a republic, which was against everything as it currently was. Sinn Féin's rivals, the Irish Parliamentary Party and Labour, had been broken by World War I and needed to rebuild themselves and their reputations if they wanted to compete. The clergy was on Sinn Féin's side because of conscription. De Valera also went a long way to argue that anti-conscription was not anti-soldier, nor were they ignoring the sacrifice of the Irishmen who fought in the war so far. But the crime was that Britain sacrificed the best Ireland had for a colonial war. Three curated candidates. Sinn Féin ran those it was confident would win and in seats that would not weaken its own position or risk schism with the labor movement. Also, there was some election rigging and voter intimidation, to be sure. Instead of sitting in Parliament, the Sinn Féin candidates would sit in a new Parliament, the, the first Dáil Éireann. Part 4a. The Dáil. The first Dáil was formed on January 21st, 1919. It held its first meeting in the Round Room of the Mansion House of Dublin, and created a Declaration of Independence and the Dáil Constitution. Only 27 ministers appeared because 34 were in jail or on secret missions. Sinn Féin invited the Irish Parliamentary Party and Unionists to participate, but they refused. The Declaration of Independence ratified the proclamation of the Republic of Easter Rising and outlined a socialist platform, but was more of a propaganda message because there was only so much the Dáil could realistically achieve while battling England. The Constitution was a provisional document and created a ministry of the Dáil Éireann. The ministry consisted of a president and five secretaries. The first ministers of the first Dáil were Cathal Braga, he was chairman, Eowyn McNeil was minister for finance, Michael Collins was minister for home affairs, Count Plunkett was minister for foreign affairs, and Richard Mulcahy was minister for national defense. The Dáil expanded the number of ministers in April. It now included nine ministers within the cabinet, Four and four outside the cabinet, as well as a mechanism to create substitute presidents and ministers in the realistic event someone was arrested or killed. So the, the members of the new ministry were Edmund de Valera as president, Arthur Griffith as secretary for home affairs, Cathal Broga as secretary for defense, Count Plunkett as secretary for foreign affairs, Constance Markievicz for, as secretary for labor, Eowyn McNeil as secretary for industries, Michael Collins as Secretary for Finance, um, William Cosgrave as Secretary for Local Government. Austin Stack would become Minister after his release from jail, and then he took over as Secretary for Home Affairs after Arthur Griffith became the Deputy President. 
Once the doll was once the doll was convened, the Irish volunteers saw themselves as an army for the Irish Republic, hence why they named themselves the Irish Republican Army. They were formally renamed the IRA on August 20th, 1919, and took an oath of allegiance to the Republic and to serve as a standing army. On June 18, 1919, the Dáil officially established the Dáil Courts, which were meant to replace the British judiciary in Ireland. They eventually created several series of courts, including a parish-based arbitration court, district courts, and a supreme court, which the people trusted more than the British courts. On June 19th, the Dáil approved the first Dáil loan to raise funds they couldn't raise via taxes. England declared the Dáil illegal on September 19th, but it was too little too late to undermine Ireland's shadow government. De Valera left Ireland to fundraise in the United States, leaving Griffith as his deputy president. The conduct of the Dáil fell to its ministers, while the conduct of the war fell to Collins, Mulcahy, Broda, and the field commanders. Part 5 a brief summary of the guerrilla warfare in Ireland. The IRA would be broken into General Headquarters, GHQ, and local commanders. GHQ was run by Chief of Staff Richard Mulcahy, who reported to Cathal Broda, the Minister of Defense. Mulcahy also worked closely with Michael Collins, Minister of Finance and Intelligence, and this amorphous command structure created a lot of tension amongst the three men, and you guessed it, would be import important for the Irish Civil War. While Mulcahy tried to instill discipline and standardization from GHQ, he was only partially successful as conditions on the ground often trumped whatever master plan GHQ had cooked up. It's estimated that the IRA had 15,000 members, but only 3,000 were active at one time. The members were broken into three groupings, unreliable, reliable, and active. Unreliable meant they were members in name only, reliable meant they played a supporting role, and active meant they were full-time fighters. It's believed at least one-fifth of the active members were assistants and clerks. Skilled workers dominated the recruitment, while farmers and agricultural workers were a minority. About 88% of the IRA members were under 30, and a majority of them were Catholic. The most active units were in Dublin, Dublin County and Munster County, which included the cities of Clare, Cork, Kerry, Limerick, Tipperary, and Waterford. The local units were supposed to be organized along the lines of battalion, but it was up to the local commanders who were originally elected by their men. Initially, GHQ tried to assign two to three brigades per county, but it would take a while before those brigades solidified. For the first year, the IRA could only muster small units, which actually worked in their favor. Local commanders adopted the flying columns method of attack, and GHQ eventually gave it their blessing. Flying columns consisted of a permanent roster of soldiers who worked together in small groups and coordinated attacks. The flying columns performed two kinds of attacks, auxiliary and independent. In an auxiliary attack, the flying column was assigned to a battalion as extra, as extra support for a large local operation already taking place. In an independent attack, the flying column itself would strike the enemy and retreat. This type of attack included harassing small military camps and police stations, pillaging enemy store stores, interrupting communications, and eventually ambushing. The flying columns would become an elite and coveted unit, but the soldiers were always on the run and relied on local support to survive. The IRA would go through two different reorganizations. Their first occurred in March 1921. It broke up the brigade structure into small columns built from experienced men. 
The brigade staff existed to provide supplies of arms, ammunition, and equipment, while battalions provided the men for the columns. During the same reorganization, GHQ broke Ireland up into four different war zones to encourage activity in quieter areas. In late 1921, the IRA was reorganized a second time. This time, GHQ created divisions. Division commanders were responsible for large swaths of territory, similar to the war zones created earlier that year. The purpose of the divisional commanders was to increase the livelihood of brigade and battalion coordination, made the IRA feel like it was growing into a real army, but still allowed and encouraged independent command. This new division structure also transplanted some of the administrative burdens from GHQ to the divisional commanders. This was especially important if something were to happen to GHQ. You can listen to season one to learn about specific battles. For the purpose of this recap, all, all you really need to know is that the IRA went from singular ambushes led by ambitious local commanders to coordinated ambushes. Assassinations, the most famous being Bloody Sunday, carried out by Colin's personal assassins, the squad, prison riots, hunger strikes, and outright assaults on barracks in the rural areas of Ireland. In addition to these military developments, the Dáil supported the war effort by retaining the people's support and maintaining the functionality of the Dáil courts and the Dáil loans. The other important thing to note is that while the IRA were enjoying some military success, internally there were a lot of schisms and tensions and just bad relations. One of the more important ones being amongst Collins, Broga, and Mulcahy and that would be very important for the Irish Civil War. The British responded by implementing martial law, launching large-scale searches and arrests, curfews, roadblocks, and internment on suspicion, and by creating the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries. The Black and Tans all arrived in Ireland on March 25, 1920. They were meant to reinforce the IRCs and recruited mostly British veterans. They were called Black and Tans because of their uniforms, dark green, which appeared black and khaki. They weren't special forces, just normal reinforcements, which may explain why they were known for their brutality and violence. The Auxiliaries were founded in July 1920 as a paramilitary unit of the RIC. It consisted of British officers and were meant to serve as a mobile strike force and raiding force. 2,300 men served during the war, and they were deployed in the southern and western regions of Ireland, where fighting was the heaviest. The Auxiliaries were absolute brutes, known for arson and cruelty. The British wanted to subdue Ireland by the May 1921 election, so they sent over 51 battalions of infantry. However, confusion over the military's role, the IRC's role, an inability to coordinate amongst the army, IRC, black and tans, and artilleries, and the implementation of, of martial law hurt British efforts. The IRA were still feeling the pressure. Still, the IRA were feeling the pressure. In early 1921, they suffered some of their most drastic defeats, contributing to poor morale and disgruntlement with the Dáil and GHQ. GHQ was losing control over local forces while also trying to maintain a guerrilla war on a shoestring budget, which is going to be very important for the Irish Civil War. To make matters worse, de Valera returned from America in December 1920 and spent most of 1921 trying to reorganize the IRA and Dahl according to his vision. His arrival exasperated already existing tensions among several ministers, including Collins, Mulcahy, and Broga, and threatened to tear the IRA apart from the inside. Despite all of this, by May 1921, the IRA had reached its peak and the Crown forces suffered record losses. 
From the, from the beginning of 1921 to July 1921, the IRA killed 94 British soldiers and 223 policemen, which was nearly double the totals from the last six months of 1920. This was also when the IRA launched their most ambitious attacks, such as their attack on the Shell Factory, which amounted to 88,000 pounds in damages, and their assault on the Dublin Custom House, destroying the Inland Revenue, Stamp Office, and Stationary Office records. In addition to these attacks, the IRA increased the number and sophistication of their attacks in what is now Northern Ireland. However, these attacks would be self-defeating as they only enraged the Ulster Volunteers and left the Catholic population at the mercy of angry Unionists. These attacks would convince the British that Ireland was already partitioned, even if Sinn Féin and the IRA refused to acknowledge the fact, and it was their interest to protect Northern Ireland from IRA incursions. This meant another army and more money that could have been spent elsewhere. It was clear that neither side should win this conflict through military efforts alone, and that a truce may be desirable. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and that you're looking forward to Season 3. You can listen to my full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and my website, www.sanswarroom.com. Please join my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash aoawarfare to keep up to date on all my projects. Until next time, wear a mask, organize your community, and stay safe.